Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. Hi, my name is Tim Carney. I am a resident scholar, a resident fellow here at the American Enterprise Institute in the uh, new division, uh, Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies. This division is a creation of Yuval Levin, who is uh, new to AI uh, in the last few months and uh, widely known and long respected as one of the uh, one of the greatest uh, public intellectuals, conservative public intellectuals here in Washington D.C. Um, but we're here to talk about another one of his creations, uh, which is his new book, "A Time to Build." This is an excellent book, and the timing is excellent, maybe not from a sales perspective to have your book come out on the first day of impeachment, but certainly from a, uh, a, a moral perspective and from a perspective of what our country needs. Clearly, as the president is uh, getting impeached here, we know that there's something not quite right with our country. And a lot of people would say that it's very simple, what's not quite right with our country, that it's Donald Trump. Others would say that it's a, a Democratic Party that can't handle it. Others would say it's the left in the culture war, the right in the culture war, or media. Um, Yuval, in A Time to Build, makes a case that there's a, a deeper problem, and he gets very specific and precise about what it is. It's a crisis of our institutions. He asks, what do we lack but are not asking for? And that is the other key insight in this, that Yuval probes into this book into parts of our cultural malaise that most of us don't think to ask, is this where the problem is? We're, we're looking at particularly cultural phenomenon or we're looking at one side or the other, but that there's a deeper thing. Um, this is an excellent book. It's changed my thinking. First of all, it's much more forward-looking than I am. I'm a journalist, and so I always like looking at what the problem is. Yuval actually talks about how to build uh, solutions in this. That's why it's called A Time to Build. But it's changed my thinking um, with, uh, about all sorts of stuff. With Martin Luther King's birthday yesterday, I, I saw the civil rights era different when I started seeing it as a movement of institutions. And with the impeachment today, I saw both the jobs of a senator different and the job of us as journalists different when we started asking, given my role, given my role as a journalist or given their role as a senator, what is the proper thing to do? And the other thing that struck me is that that's not always a question that we ask when we're faced with problems. So I hope you will all get this book and read it. It's an excellent book. I expect it will change your thinking. And right now, please do welcome Yuval up here to talk about it. Thank you very much, Tim. I really appreciate that. And thanks to all of you for being here. Wonderful colleagues like Tim are one of the most wonderful things about being at a place like AI. And there are many wonderful things about it. Just look around uh, and you'll see them. Uh, and I appreciate it enormously. Um, I'll just tell you a little bit about the book and what it might have to offer, and then I'm very eager to chat with Tim and with all of you uh, about any questions that it might open up and ways that it might direct us. I would say that um, publishing it on the first day of impeachment was not our plan. Um, in fact, it was published when it was because our, my publisher was concerned that it would come out too close to the Iowa caucuses and people might be distracted. So, of course, this way no one is distracted by anything and everyone can focus on these large questions. Um, this is a book about 
some of what's gone wrong in our country in recent years and about what we can do about it. Um, that something has gone wrong is, I think, pretty clear. But exactly what it is actually isn't as clear as we might think or pretend that it is. We as Americans are living through a kind of social crisis. Uh, we can see that in everything from vicious polarization to rampant culture war resentments to an upsurge of isolation and alienation and despair that has sent suicide rates climbing and has driven an, op- an epidemic of opioid abuse. These kinds of deep dysfunctions in what seem like very different parts of our, of our society's life seem to have some common roots. But exactly what are those roots? What's gone wrong here? Part of this crisis, I think, one of its symptoms is that we can't seem to get a handle on exactly what that is. Traditional economic concerns don't really cut it as explanations. We certainly went through a severe recession in America in 2007 and 8, but it ended more than a decade ago, and we now have actually been living through one of the longest economic expansions of the modern era, and we have very low unemployment, low inflation, interest rates, wages are rising. It's not that some Americans aren't suffering economically, but the problems we have on that front don't add up to the crisis that we're going through. And other familiar measures of well-being really don't offer obvious explanations either. Americans are as healthy and as safe as we've ever been. It's hard to point to obvious breakdowns in these familiar kinds of measures. So what really are we complaining about? There are people who argue that there isn't anything to complain about and that the frustration and anxiety that seem to overwhelm us now are rooted in imaginary grievances and so that they themselves, in fact, are the problem. Steven Pinker of Harvard takes these kinds of complaints to be just irritable gestures of self-indulgent ingratitude. In a recent book, uh, he he, he outlines mountains of data on wealth and health and safety and choice and concludes that populist complaints on all sides of our politics are detached from reality. And they're dangerous, he says. They drive us to radicalism in politics and in the culture. But surely public frustration is not just some kind of self-delusion especially frustration that runs this deep and that's revealed itself in such a broad range of symptoms. Pinker's happy data are not wrong, and neither are the encouraging economic indicators. But if those don't explain the reigning sentiments of our time, then we should ask ourselves what those kinds of indicators might ignore or what signs we all might be missing. Our traditional indicators of wealth and health and personal freedom don't explain the problem because these familiar indicators, important as they are, are largely material and individual. They assess our well-being on our own. But none of us can actually experience well-being on our own. It's in the joints of society, at the junctures of individual, at the interstices of life, that the trouble really shows itself. One way to put that point is that many of our struggles seem to be rooted in relational problems. Loneliness and isolation, mistrust and suspicion, alienation, polarization, these are the problems we're having. They're failures of sociality, and so they can fall into a blind spot for our individualist culture. So how do we explain this kind of crisis of connectedness? Some people argue that the trouble is philosophical or metaphysical, that liberalism has failed because it fails to offer a sufficient vocabulary or architecture for solidarity. Other people say that although traditional measures of growth and prosperity seem to be fine, our problem is still economic in a deeper sense. It's socioeconomic. They say that contemporary capitalism creates levels of inequality that make it impossible for people to feel like equal parts of a larger whole or to believe in the legitimacy of our political and economic order. 
Others suggest that external pressures like trade or immigration or internal pressures like racism or identity politics have left us unable to hang together. There's surely some truth to all these explanations. They all get at something important because they treat the human person as embedded in a larger whole, whether that whole is metaphysical or moral or social or economic. And they see that what's wrong has to do with the way in which we now live out that embeddedness. But I still think they miss something crucial. When we think about our problems in these ways, we tend to imagine our society as a vast open space filled with people who are having trouble linking hands. And so we talk about breaking down walls or building bridges or leveling playing fields, casting unifying narratives. But there's a missing step between joining together and actually recovering belonging and trust and legitimacy. What we're missing, although we too early put it this way, is not just connectedness, but a structure for our social life a way to give shape and purpose and concrete meaning and identity to the things we do together. If American life is a big open space, it's not a space filled with individuals. It is a space filled with these structures of social life, a space filled with institutions. And if we're too often failing to foster belonging and legitimacy and trust, then more than a failure of connection, we confront a failure of institutions. Institutions do much more than connect us, and understanding our social crisis in terms of what they are and what they do could help us see that crisis in a new light. That's the understanding that this book tries to advance. So what is an institution? It won't surprise you to learn that there are lots of different academic definitions of the term. The book thinks through some of these in a variety of ways, but for our purposes, let me just suggest a general definition that draws together some of that work but also looks to the problems we confront in our society now. By institutions, I mean the durable forms of our common life. They're the shapes, the structures of what we do together. Some institutions are organizations and have something like a corporate form, a university or a hospital, a school, a business, a civic association. These are all institutions, and they're technically and legally formalized. Some institutions are durable forms of a different sort, Maybe they're shaped by laws or norms or rules, but without a corporate structure. The family is an institution. It's the first and foremost institution of any society. We can speak about the institution of marriage or a particular tradition or profession as an institution. We can talk about the rule of law itself as an institution. That they're durable is essential. An institution keeps its general shape over time and so shapes the realm of life in which it operates. It usually changes gradually and incrementally. Flash mobs don't count. But most important, what's distinct about an institution is that it is a form. In the deepest sense, a form is a structure or a contour. It's the shape of the whole, the organization that speaks of its purpose and its logic and its function and meaning. A social form, an institution, is not just a bunch of people. It's a bunch of people ordered together to achieve a purpose, to pursue a goal, to advance an ideal, and that means that institutions are also, by their nature, formative. They structure our interactions, and as a result, they structure us. They shape our habits and our expectations, and ultimately, they shape our characters and our souls. They help to form us, and that formative role actually has a lot to do with how institutions relate to the social crisis that we're living through. Let me say just a few words on that particular point. When we think about the role of institutions in American life now, we might tend to think first in terms of our loss of trust or confidence in them. That's how they come up in our public conversations. It's a trend that we hear about a lot, and measures of it are very easy to find. They paint a very grim kind of picture. 
Gallup has kept track of what it calls Americans' confidence in institutions for decades, in most cases from 1973 until today. And the trend they find is unmistakable. From big business and banks and the professions to the branches of the federal government, the news media, the academy, it's found that confidence in our institutions has been plummeting pretty consistently. In the early 1970s, 80% of Americans said they had a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in doctors and hospitals, for instance. Last year, that figure was 37%. Forty years ago, 65% of Americans said they had a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in organized religion. About 40% did last year. 60% back then expressed confidence in the public schools. About a third did last year. Even in 1975, a year after Richard Nixon's resignation in disgrace, 52% of Americans expressed confidence in the presidency. Last year, 32% did. Gallup even found that 42% of the public had confidence in Congress in the 1970s. Last year, that figure was 12%. And even that seems high, really. Who are these people? (laughs) That pattern holds for just about all of the institutions that Gallup asked about. The military is the only major exception, and we'll think about that in just a second. But the pattern is unmistakable. The American public has gone from extraordinary levels of confidence in our major institutions to really striking levels of mistrust. But what do we actually mean when we say we don't trust institutions? The answer, I think, has a lot to do with what institutions are and do, and it takes us back to this question of how they form us. Every significant institution carries out some important task in society, educating children or enforcing the law or serving the poor or just providing some service or making some product, meeting a need. And it does that by establishing a structure and a process, again, a form for combining people's efforts toward accomplishing that task. And in the process, that institution also forms people to carry out that task effectively, responsibly, and reliably. It shapes the people within it to be trustworthy. This is what it means to trust an institution. We trust an institution when it seems to have an ethic that makes the people within it worthy of our trust. So we trust political institutions when they take seriously some obligation to the public interest and they form the people in them to do that. We trust the military because it values courage and honor and duty in carrying out the defense of the nation and clearly shapes people who do too. We trust a business because it promises quality and integrity in meeting some need we have and it rewards its people when they deliver those. We trust a school because it builds a culture that makes its people devoted to learning and teaching in some way that we can take seriously. We trust a journalistic institution because it has high standards of honesty and accuracy in reporting the news that make the work of its people reliable. We lose faith in an institution when we no longer believe that it plays this ethical or formative role, shaping the people within it to be trustworthy. One way that that could happen is when institutions claim to enforce an ethic of responsibility but just plainly fail to do it and instead end up shielding and empowering bad behavior. When a bank cheats its customers, for example, or when a member of the clergy abuses a child, that kind of gross abuse of power obviously undermines public trust in institutions. It's a familiar kind of corruption, but it isn't new. There are plenty of examples of it in our time, but there are a lot of examples of it in every time. So it doesn't quite explain the distinctive loss of confidence in institutions in our day. Another related but different way in which an institution could lose our trust, though, is when it simply fails to impose an ethic on the people within it altogether and doesn't even seem to see that kind of formation as its purpose. When the people in that institution no longer see it as a mold of their character and behavior, but just as a platform for themselves to perform on, to raise their profiles, 
to be seen. An institution like that seems not to be worthy of our trust, not because it's failed to earn it, but because it seems not to seek it or to desire it at all. And something like that is what's been happening to a lot of our institutions in recent decades in America. When we don't think of our institutions as formative but as performative, when the presidency and Congress are just stages for performative outrage, when a university becomes a venue for virtue signaling, when journalism is hard to distinguish from activism, when the church becomes a political stage, they all become harder to trust. They aren't really asking for our trust, just for our attention. And in our time, a lot of the most significant social and political and cultural institutions are in the process of going through this transformation, we might say from mold to platform. The few exceptions, again, most notably the military, the most unabashedly formative of our national institutions, tend to prove that rule because they tend to be the few in which we aren't losing our confidence. And many of the genuinely novel institutions of the 21st century, especially the virtual institutions of social media, are inherently shaped as platforms and not as molds. It would be strange to trust a platform, and we generally don't. This change of attitude, this decline in the expectation that our institutions should be formative, is at the heart of our loss of faith in institutions. And it is, in turn, at the heart of our broader social crisis, because institutions understood as platforms rather than as molds, as stages to perform on rather than as means to form and shape our character, are less able to offer us objects of loyalty and sources of legitimacy and means of building mutual trust. Examples of this transformation from mold to platform are everywhere around us now. And in many cases, our institutions are being made into platforms not just for any performance, but for performative virtue and performative outrage in our vast and polarized culture war. In one institution after another, we find people who ought to think of themselves as insiders, shaped by the distinct purpose and integrity of the institution, instead functioning as outsiders, displaying themselves and building their own personal brand on top of it, we might say. This is obvious in politics. Is there any doubt that Donald Trump sees the presidency as a stage for performative outrage and himself as a performer acting on it rather than as an executive acting in it or through it? What is he doing when he tweets his displeasure with something the Department of Justice just did? They work for him, right? If he had a sense of his job as shaped by its institutional contours, he would direct the executive branch rather than complain about it. But his sense of his job is as another stage for the kind of reality show that has been his life. Is there any question that many members of Congress now run for office less to be involved in legislative work and more to have a prominent platform in the culture war, to become more visible on cable news or on talk radio, to build a social media following, and to use their elected office mostly as a platform to complain about the very institution that they worked so hard to enter? They see it as what their voters want, and they're always performing for a core partisan audience. Are our two major political parties now anything other than two platforms for performance? Do they have a function other than displaying and elevating narcissists? Do we even remember what the role of the political party is supposed to be? But we can look beyond politics, too. Think about the profession of journalism as an example. Its institutional strength is its insistence on a formative integrity, on a process of editing and verification that helps us be more sure that what it provides is reliable. But today, a lot of elite journalists step outside of those institutional constraints and address the public directly on social media or on cable news, building their own personal brands on a platform rather than participating in the work of institutions. Check in on Twitter right now, and you'll find a lot of professional reporters 
effectively deprofessionalizing themselves. Journalists inclined to complain about how Donald Trump has behaved in office should consider whether Trump's behavior relative to what the presidency is might be quite similar to the behavior of a lot of leading political reporters relative to what journalism is. Both are playing out a kind of self-indulgent celebrity version of the real thing, and in both cases that makes it much harder for them to do their essential important work. You can see the same pattern in the academy. Rather than serving the institutional purpose of the university, which is to form some portion of the rising generation through teaching and learning, we find many in the university using the institution as a platform for virtue signaling and for political and culture war theatrics. There's a version of this in some portions of American religion, where institutions that exist to form and transform souls are being used instead as platforms for political theater and culture war drama, so that the cachet of the church is used less to form those within it than to let them express themselves. We can see that pattern throughout American life. That distortion of institutionalism amounts in practical terms to the great unasked question of our time. Given my role here, how should I behave? That's what someone who takes an institution they're involved with seriously would ask. And a lot of the trouble facing our core institutions now could be described as a widespread failure to ask that simple question. Given my role here, how should I behave? As a president, as a member of Congress, as a teacher or a scientist, a pastor or a worker or a parent or a neighbor, what am I supposed to do here? I would bet that the people that you most respect these days seem to ask that kind of question before they make important judgments. And I would bet that the people who drive you crazy, who you think are part of the problem in America, seem to fail to ask that question when they really should. That's one way to understand the transformation of our expectations of institutions, which has so much to do with the broader set of problems that we're dealing with. That transformation has left a lot of Americans with a sense that our institutions can't be trusted, that they aren't in the business of earning trust. And that has left us short of sources of formation and belonging and legitimacy and social cohesion. That problem does not simply explain the social crisis we're living through, of course, but it is one important factor behind the crisis we confront, and it's one that we're particularly likely to miss or ignore because we aren't very good at seeing institutions and grasping what they're for. So what can we do about this? Books like this often have a final chapter where, having diagnosed some complicated problem, the author will offer you an agenda, and it turns out that this moment calls for whatever it is that author has always wanted and expected out of government. So I would just end up telling you now that the child tax credit or some familiar national affairs idea could fix all this. Now, it so happens that that's true, and if you agree, there are Marco Rubio staffers around the audience to take your name and email address. But this book doesn't actually have a chapter like that. Uh, It takes a different approach to the question of what should be done. I think dealing with this problem requires a change of mindset to begin with. Witnessing failures of responsibility in so many of our institutions, we're tempted to a disposition to demolish, to uproot. And we're tempted to conclude that only outsiders can save us. That's why so much of the energy of our politics is spent tearing down these supposedly powerful establishments. But in fact, we don't need more outsiders who pretend that they're just critics with no power to act. We need more insiders, institutionalists who will be earnest both in their efforts to build frameworks for common action and in their acceptance of the duties that accompany power. Those in our society who have the most power, our leaders or elites, need to especially to resist the urge to pretend that they're outsiders, 
as they too often do now. But everyone else does too. Instead, we all should try somehow to embrace the responsibilities that come with whatever positions we hold. And we should ensure that obligations and restraints actually protect and empower us. We need to inhabit the institutions that we each are part of, to love them and where necessary to reform them so that we can help make them more lovely for other people too. We need to understand ourselves as formed by these institutions and to act accordingly. Again, to ask in little moments of decisions, not just what do I want here, but what should I do here, given my role, given my responsibilities. Questions like these would seem to be an awfully small response to the enormous kinds of social problems that I started with. And of course, they're only a start. But they're how we can begin to work toward a change of mindset. And they can add up to make a difference. If our leaders asked them more often, our politics would be improved a lot. If professionals in many fields thought this way a little more, it would be easier to trust their expertise and accept their claims to authority. If people who participate in all the institutions that we're, pro- that we're part of tried to think this way, it would be easier to feel like we belong to something worthwhile. This sort of change of mindset is not a substitute for institutional reform, but it's an essential prerequisite for it. The book does get into some structural institutional reforms that might help some of the particular institutions that I talk about, like Congress and the political parties, the professions, the academy, civic and religious institutions. But the common denominator when it comes to those kinds of reforms is that the people in those institutions have to want them to happen. And that means that they have to first see that the ways they're now behaving are a big part of the problem and that by making key institutions impossible to trust, we are contributing to a profound and destructive set of social dysfunctions in America. In one arena after another of American life, we face the challenge of drawing alienated people back into our institutions. We can point to all kinds of complicated theories about how to build the trust that's required to accomplish that. But the simplest way to start is for the people who inhabit our institutions, that is for all of us, to try to be more trustworthy. And we each can work at that. We can give our institutional responsibilities more of our time and effort. We can give them more of our identity and self-consciousness. We can understand ourselves as defined by them a little more. We can judge ourselves by their standards and hold ourselves up to their ideals, take seriously their forms of integrity, try to align our pride and our ambition with theirs a little more. And we can work to reform them where they're failing, to help them work better and be more worthy of confidence. We can yearn not for the formless autonomy of the independent contractor, but for the rootedness and responsibility of the member and the partner and the worker and the owner and the citizen. There's a word for attitudes like that. The word is devotion. What's required of each of us is devotion to the work we do together with others in the service of a common aspiration, and therefore devotion also to the institutions we compose and inhabit. That kind of devotion calls for sacrifice and for commitment. It calls on each of us to pledge ourselves to some institution we belong to unabashedly, to abandon our ironic distance and jump in a little more. And this kind of devotion is not only necessary, it's actually very attractive just now. I think we want objects of devotion. We want something to commit to. But we don't see that what we're looking for is often well within our reach. It's easy to be fashionable rebels in a time like this. It's harder to remind ourselves why our core commitments are worthwhile. That's the kind of case that institutionalism involves now, and it's why it's so crucial. What I'm proposing here, in other words, is a modest change in our stance toward our country and toward the kind of social crisis it confronts. Not a social revolution or a political transformation, at least not directly. 
just a greater awareness of how integrity and trust and confidence, belonging and meaning are established in our lives. And so a greater care about some habits we've gotten into that tend to cut us off from them. These habits have left us feeling like there's no one we can trust except cynics and outsiders, and nothing we can do except register our outrage at various people and ideas we disagree with. That is what the life of our society would look like without functional institutions. But the fact is that our society has many functional institutions, and it could have many more if we devote ourselves to strengthening and reforming those that we are part of, and if we try to respond to needs and problems by building and rebuilding institutions rather than just expressing frustration. Thinking and speaking just a little differently about how we live together can make a bigger difference than you might imagine. It can help us see what we've been missing. It can help us do what we've been neglecting, say what we've only assumed or taken for granted. Small steps like those are what make larger changes possible. They're constructive, and so they build upon each other and turn us all into builders. And that, in the end, is the character of the transformation we need. The demolition crews have been allowed for too long to define the spirit of this era in America. But where we're headed will be up to the builders and rebuilders. And that is what we each should try to be. When I was reading your description of Congress and thinking about how so many see it as a platform, um, and even your description of, of the media, I was thinking about my younger colleagues at The Examiner and how they haven't seen any different type of national news media or, or Washington, D.C. Yeah. The idea that sort of Ted Cruz and the Tea Party were different and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is a different sort of Democrat or that uh, certain CNN reporters being celebrities in a White House press briefing is new it would, would startle them. So I guess my question is every time a conservative writes a book and says there's a problem going on, we always have to say, what's sort of the timeline on here? Was there a time when we did have uh, more respect for institutions? Was it just that one little window you point to, you know, 1970, 1960? What's the timeline of the collapse of our institutions? Yeah, it's a great question, Tim. Thank you. So, yes, in some ways, I'm just an old man saying things used to be better than this, and I can't tell you exactly when, but I'm sure they were. Uh, but I don't think that's quite what's going on here. I, I, it does seem to me that this particular kind of transformation, as I said, there are a lot of ways of losing confidence in institutions, and in some respects, it's worth noticing that that's been going on in these public opinion trends for a long time in America, for 40 years or so. Um, but I do think that the, the nature of the institutional deformations that we're looking at now is distinct, and that the idea of a kind of corrosive celebrity culture entering every institution, and one that's so deeply connected to the culture wars that we're fighting in our politics, I do think that's different. And, and one of the ways you see that it's different is that it makes our institutions all look like one another, so that what happens at the New York Times just isn't different enough from what happens at Brown University. Those are both just places to stand and scream about oppression, right? And the fact is, those are different institutions. They're, they have different roles. They're both enormously important roles. And when they just become platforms for this kind of, of virtue signaling and political performance art, then they're not performing their distinct functions. They're, do, they're all doing this one thing, which, look, maybe it's a useful thing, but there are plenty of places to do it. And Congress has another job. Congress actually has a, a hugely important job in a divided society like ours, to help us find some ways to reach accommodations, that becomes impossible when it's just another platform, when it's just another stage. I do think that's a distinct kind of problem that we face now, 
that has to be thought through by a distinct kind of institutionalism. But if you're asking somebody to only do what their role calls for, you're asking them to give up some sort of, uh, you're asking them to give up power. And so for, especially on, on the left today, they would say, no, you're, you're always asking us to give up power. And if we have power because the professors will listen to us at Brown or because, you know, we can make life uncomfortable for our editors at the New York Times, if we have power to speak out in defense of the oppressed, of the historically disempowered, of injustice, racism, et cetera, say, we're going to use that power everywhere and anywhere. So, in fact, you're asking them to do something that they consciously chose to do, which is use every lever they can to fight for justice. Are you just asking them to... No, it should be. It should go through the proper channels. That can I, sound really old and stodgy. I think there's a. I think there's a misimpression of what power is at the heart of that view, which I agree with you is a common view. Um, members of Congress have a lot of power. They could have a lot more power if they wanted to. Um, if they actually wanted to legislate, for example, they could have real power. Um, they don't want to. And what they want to do instead is register their opinion in as loud and prominent a way as possible. That's part of their job, and I don't suggest that there's not a performative aspect to being a member of Congress. Certainly there is. But when that takes over and becomes the only thing the institution does and the only way that, that its members understand its purpose, then they've lost power. And Congress has lost a lot of power mm-hmm. to this process. It's lost a lot of power to this desire to just simply be seen expressing the opinions that, that your most devoted constituents want to hear. So that... When you now look at a congressional hearing, and I spent a lot of time doing this, so I don't recommend it to all of you to spend a lot of time doing this. Basically, what happens now in your average congressional hearing is a bunch of people creating distinct YouTube clips to use later. Um, they're not talking to each other. They're not talking to the witnesses. They're, they know there's a camera there, and they want to create a moment that will be valuable for them for political purposes later on. Now, that's one way to spend your time as a politician, but Congress has work to do, and if that's all they're doing, it doesn't seem to me that they're exercising power. And I, I think in general, mistaking the expression of opinion for actual mm-hmm. action is a sort of characteristic error of 21st century America. So that people feel like, if I've said what I have to say on, on social media, then I've really done something about this. We haven't done a damn thing. Th- there are ways to act together. There are ways to... Uh, take political action, including expressive action, but they involve organization and structure, something durable. They require you to do more than just say that you're on the right side of this or that. Now, when I listen to you now, when I read your uh, chapter on Congress and how the parties need to be stronger, and in fact, there's a, a real harm to weak parties, my kind of populist, uh, inner populist starts, starts revving up. And I think about what the, the Tea Party sort of disassembled was this system that looked to me like it was very corrupt. Mm-hmm. It looked to me like what you had to do to advance if you were a member of Congress in either party was basically please your party bosses, which, also, which in turn would mean the party bosses would then funnel money to you, and the money would come from you attending fundraisers from these industry chiefs. And so industry and whoever had the, you know, the, and the revolving door lobbyist, your former committee chairman is now a lobbyist, and that what these guys would do is just ensure that the big guys with the money rigged the game in their advantage, and that the sort of decentralizing effect of something like 
the, the Democrats' current sort of AOC-type Tea Party, the Republicans' Tea Party in 2010, the decentralizing effect of that stripped power away from the lobbyists and gave an ability for somebody like Ted Cruz to actually whip the leadership by going outside and saying, hey, if you, the public, disagree, using social media, that sort of thing, you can apply pressure. So decentralizing had a way of battling some of the embedded corruption is the way that I've seen that. But that's not at all the tone of, of your chapter. It's on not. I'll, I'll say a couple of things. I, I, was, I was very open to the Tea Party. Um, it seemed to me in the moment like a populist movement with a, w- w- that was working to advance a kind of Republican ideal. Um, the site of populist arguments for the Constitution, uh, for limited government, I, I thought it was great. Uh, in retrospect, I don't think that's what was going on. And the reason I don't think so is that, to me, the most, the most interesting thing that happened in 2016, which was a very interesting year, you may recall, um, was early on in the Republican primaries, the Tea Party voters became Donald Trump's first voters. Now, if you listen to what the Tea Party said about public policy and what Donald Trump said, it would seem like these were on opposite ends of, uh, of at least the right. Um, the Tea Party was relatively libertarian, um, cared a lot about the Constitution, limited government, entitlement reform, uh, basically pro-trade in most ways. If you listen to the tone of the Tea Party and Donald Trump, they were very similar. And the fact that Tea Party voters were the first to go for Trump suggests to me that what they liked about the Tea Party was the tone and not the substance. Mm-hmm. And the tone was basically a, an antinomian tone. It was a tear it all down Burn tone. Burn it all down, yep. Yeah. Um, and I'm a conservative. Burn it all down is not a slogan that appeals to me. <laughs> but more than that, I, it, it, it seems to me to be in tension with a lot of the substance that we took the Tea or that I at least took the Tea Party to stand for. Um, and it seems to me now, in retrospect, that the substance just wasn't what mattered. It wasn't where the power was uh, in that moment. Uh, and so to your point about Congress, I, I don't think Congress was as corrupt as you're suggesting. There's corruption in Congress. Uh, maybe there was more and there now is less. All these things are matters of degree. But I don't think that the Congress of the mid-2000s um, was best understood as a fundamentally corrupted by money institution. Um, it was, for one thing, much less corrupt than Congress was almost at any other time in its history, um, much less corrupt than it was in the middle of the 20th century, which we think of as a kind of high point for American government, maybe. Um, and I, I think Congress had a variety of problems in that period and has many problems now. I would put corruption by money relatively low down um, on, the, on the list of those problems. Um, and so it seems to me that if we're looking for ways to help Congress function better, um, we have to find ways to invest the ambition and interest of members in the work of legislation. And I think that does require ways of letting those members matter, ways of letting them be involved in the substantive work of the institution, we've reached a place now where all the substantive work is done at midnight before government shutdown in the, in, in the leader's mm-hmm. office. And w- why does that happen? That's the only place where members can talk to each other without performing, without being on camera. There's no other space in Congress that is now 
a deliberative space. All of the spaces are performative spaces instead. And I think that has to change. That, to me, is much more core to the nature of the corruption we've seen in the institution, the deformation, let's say, of Congress's work, um, than even the role of lobbyists and the role of money, which certainly we have to think about and worry about, but doesn't strike me as the heart of the problem. You suggest that transparency has gone too far, and maybe even C-SPAN was a mistake. I don't know if it was entirely a mistake. I've, I've actually had to make this argument on C-SPAN. It didn't go very well. <laughs> but I, I sort of I, I wrote it in passing in one piece two years ago, and they immediately invited me on C-SPAN. <laughs> um, and look, I, don't, I, I, I think that it's fine to broadcast what happens on the floor of the House and the Senate. Nobody's ever been persuaded of anything on the floor of the House of Representatives. <laughs> that has never happened. But I think committee work, if you talk to members of the Senate Intelligence Committee, they'll tell you that's their favorite committee. And the reason is they can talk to each other, they can, they can admit they don't know something. Uh, they actually do work together. So, you know, and the reason that happens is there are no cameras, right? It's, it's, all, it's all done behind closed doors. I'm sure that there's some balance that can be struck so that some hearings are public and some are not, or committees can invent a new genre of work that they don't call a hearing, but where they actually do work and talk to each other and negotiate. It's impossible to negotiate in public. I don't think that it's, that it's doable at all. And so... To the extent that Congress's work is negotiation, there has to be some room to do that. And we have to think about transparency as a good thing in its proper measure, like everything else in life. There's lots of Aristotle in this book. I will refrain from asking whether when you say form, you mean morphe, ados, or even logos. I think you kind <laughs> of mean... There's a one. footnote that answers that question, yeah. <laughs> actually. But it's ultimately an elitist book, right? <laughs> and that's not even your question. <laughs> It is my question. Like, you, you want stronger parties where the party bosses yeah. are screening out potential candidates. You... Yes, this is not a populist book. That's true. Um, I think it's a book that calls on elites to take their responsibilities seriously. I don't think you can have a society without elites. There's, there's no such thing. Every, in every society, some people are going to rise to positions of authority and prominence and power, and those people are the elites. Uh, how that happens is a matter of how that society structures its institutions. So it's not, it's not that we just have to accept any elite. We have to think about who the elites in our society should be. But I don't think elite is a, is a, is a derogatory term, or at least I don't think it should be. Uh, and so, yeah, in that sense, too, this is, you might say, a kind of Aristotelian book. Um, I just, you know, I have to say, in writing this book, I, I came to realize that a teacher of mine, Leon Cass, who basically taught me to just paraphrase Aristotle, <laughs> taught me the only skill that I have at all. Um, <laughs> I, even given this talk, you just say, this is what people think, yep. this is why they're wrong, this is where we actually ought to be. That's, you know, that comes from reading too much Aristotle. Yes. But I think it's not a bad way to think about the, the particular kind of problem that we face now. Um, I, I agree. Um, the, I want to talk about, I want to get to the media stuff in a second. I, that's sort of another one of my objections, but a sort of liberal objection is what I'm going to hit in a second. I want you guys to start thinking about questions you're going to ask. We're going to turn to you, make your questions as as concise as possible. So I'll try to say concisely. Um, May West once said of marriage, it's a fine institution, but I'm not ready to live in an institution yet. Um, Isn't there something to be said for the idea that institutions constrain us? They keep us from being our full self. They impose these rules and mores and, and shame and they, they limit our imagination. That's kind of the, the argument that I, growing up in Greenwich Village, heard a lot. What's your counter-argument Yes, I don't think I knew you grew up in Greenwich Village. <laughs> that explains a lot. <laughs> um, 
Yes. Uh, first of all, all of this is a matter of degree, and it is absolutely possible for institutions to become entirely too oppressive. And I don't just mean in constraining our freedom or limiting our choices. They can actually become oppressive, right? The, 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 the concept of institutional racism, for example, is not a metaphor in America. It's a reality. There are such things. And so w- w- we have to worry about keeping institutions from becoming excessively oppressive. We're a free society that wants to stay free. But it seems to me that in order to be a free society, a free people, we have to be a society of people who are formed for freedom. We don't start out ready. I'm not a, I'm not a Rousseauian. I don't think people are born free and they're just you know, constrained by institutions and oppressed. I think people are born messed up. And they need to be formed to be yep. free. That's, you know, if you, if you have a three-year-old, you know this. <laughs> uh, th- that formation is what our institutions are for. We need them in order to be free. And so that means that when we lean too far in the direction of weakening those institutions and of, of resisting the ways in which they try to form and constrain us, we make it hard for ourselves to build a free society. It is a balance, and there's always been a resistance to institutions in the American national character. That's part of who we are. Our, our culture has its roots in a certain kind of Protestantism that doesn't like mediation, that identifies directness with authenticity and loves authenticity. And this is a great thing. This but Protestants is, aren't the bad guy like Rousseau is. You're just saying that this uh, is yeah, an inherent... I, I, trait in America that, that Tocqueville pointed out. That we're, That's right. But isn't I, it an irony that Tocqueville also pointed out that we are, we are the ones who so most uniquely are constantly forming institutions? Right. I, I, don't, I don't think that this resistance to institutions is a problem exactly, but it can go too far. It has to be pushed back or counterbalanced by this also characteristically American inclination to build institutions. Tocqueville said, you get four Americans together, they elect a treasurer. Um, <laughs> That's, that's right. I, I, I think that one of the things I worry about in this book is that we've lost that habit a little bit. Um, we've lost the tendency to do that. And we now will just kind of stand on the side and fold our arms and say, isn't that terrible? Um, and we should recover some of that habit of, of seeing ourselves as the possessors of this problem. This is ours and not theirs. And so rather than just complain, we have to build it up. Now, might that be a very recent thing, that we're becoming less about institution formers, institution joiners? Putnam wrote about it, uh, Robert Putnam wrote about it in Bowling Alone 20 years ago, but it seems the internet does create this this illusion of us as, um, if we are connected, I think you used the word formless connectivity or something, that we are just 330 million people standing on a map. Yeah, I I think in some ways that is a modern problem. Now, there's a there's a way to keep yourself from thinking that everything's a recent problem, which is to read Robert Nisbet, yes. <laughs> who in 1953, which we're supposed to say was the golden age of all this stuff, said, isn't it terrible that Americans have stopped building institutions and everything's falling apart and we're all loners, and if he had thought of bowling alone, he would have said that too. So in some ways, and I think we as conservatives particularly have to think about this question of what does it mean that in every generation somebody arises and says our society is falling apart in this particular way? Uh, it doesn't simply mean that they're right, but it does seem to me that there is something distinct about this problem in our own experience. This is something that every generation of a free society has to deal with, and it's incumbent on us to deal with it in the ways that are, that are native to this moment. And that does mean thinking about how this relates to social media and other things. 
But it is also fundamental to a free society that it tends to break itself down this way. And so it requires a kind of resistance. I think that's one of the services that, that conservatives offer to a free society, is we say to our society, freedom, yes, but we also do require this formation. And that means that in a moment like this, it's especially important for conservatives to, to try to help our society see what it needs. And frankly, if you look around, we're failing to do that. No, I, that, that's right. And uh, I want to get to the, the media question. We talk about things changing. Uh, two days ago, yesterday, there was a, a second, pro-Second Amendment march in Richmond. And the day before, a reporter, not an opinion writer, a reporter for NBC News was pleading with his fellow reporters on how to cover this white nationalist march. And of course, a year ago, yesterday, I think it was, um, was the, when at the March for Life, the kids from Covington Catholic got totally smeared by a media that saw in 10 seconds exactly what they thought of white boys at an all-boys Catholic school wearing Make America Great Again hats. To some extent, isn't the outing of the bias of the people who are giving these news I see that as, as a, a positive development that we've always had. There's always been biases and that they were hidden. We didn't know about it. Now on Twitter, we know what Wesley Lowry of Washington Post thinks about everything. So when we read his story, there, it, we're, we're seeing it through a sort of more honest filter. You seem to think that there, you suggest in the book that there's something that is corrosive about these people showing, journalists, reporters showing their opinions. Yeah, let, let me, let me, so I, I'm, a, I'm a particular kind of conservative, Tim. I believe in the power of hypocrisy like that <laughs> to actually change our behavior. I think that if you do something that you know you're not supposed to do and you really know you're not supposed to do it, you over time become less likely to do it. So that this, what you call the unmasking, the sense that journalists just don't even have to pretend anymore, I don't think that's a good thing. I think that's a bad thing. Um, I, I, it seems to me that having the rules and the layers of editing and verification, yes, it creates some hypocrisy, right? It, some of what it means is that people just pretend to be objective when in their own conversations in the newsroom, they're, just, they're saying what they now say on Twitter. But some of what it means is that people know they have to pretend to be objective. And if you pretend long enough, again, this is Aristotle's point, if you pretend long enough to be a virtuous person, it becomes harder for other people to tell you apart from actual virtuous people because ultimately virtue is <laughs> acting well. Uh, so living by the rules is a good thing. Whether you believe it or not, it's a good thing. And it seems to me that this, this kind of unmasking that makes it harder for people to pretend that they live by the rules actually makes it harder for them to live by the rules, and it's not good for us. No, and I, I think that's exactly right, that the, the habituation um, does look to people like hypocrisy. Yeah. That's why... So then, this is why I say you have to think about, given, this, given my role here, how should I behave? When you're driving and there's a kid behind you in the car seat, you're going to behave a little differently than you would otherwise. You just are. And I don't think that's a bad thing, and I don't think it's simply hypocritical. I think that's you becoming a better person. Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next week.